Hey gang, welcome to episode 237 of the No Proscenium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio, a.k.a. the Kitchen Table in Los Angeles. I'm fighting a cold this week. Um, Catherine is stepping in to do the interview. Uh, she's brought along Jessica Crean, uh, who is the creative immersive shows such as Chaos Theory and Know Thyself. They had a conversation uh, uh, over the internet. Um, we're in this crunch mode right now with a bunch of stuff, so we're 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 using the techniques we normally avoid. Um, but this is this is this is good. This is okay. This is okay because Catherine and Jessica know each other. We we always try to avoid the the internet. Um, interviews just because um, it, it makes for a weird flow unless you know the person, right? So so that's, you know, Zay and I will do the after dark, so we'll get the whole team together. So when you know the person, uh, it goes fine. Uh, that camaraderie is already there. You're used to talking to them on the phone. So this is going to be one of those episodes uh, because Catherine and Jessica know each other. Uh, so here's what they're going to get into. They're going to discuss collision of theater and games, audience agency, designing for meaningful choice, what keeps her going as the artist, creating safe spaces using immersive theater, how her work bleeds into everyday life, and as well as, spoiler, the time she cut off all her hair in front of a live audience. So um, you can catch Jessica's work in Chaos Theory as Dr. Genevieve Seach. I probably just said that wrong. Uh, at Caveat in New York City, March 5th, April 2nd, and May 7th. So she's got uh, shows coming up every month uh, for the next couple of months. Uh, the show, that, that's been the way the show's been. It's kind of, kind of a, a residency type deal. Um, definitely worth checking out in New York City. I know that uh, if I wind up out there, uh, it's going to be on my list of things to see. It has been for a while. Um, what else is on? What else is on the brain? Uh, we do the Patreon bit, right? Uh, Patreon.com slash no presidium. We have uh, we have one new uh, listener, uh, patron. Yeah, fighting a cold. Brain not going to go well. Um, not with all the stuff I got to do today. Uh, Rachel Seaborn uh, has jumped on board uh, our bandwagon uh, as it careens around a mountain pass. I don't know. Yeah, my brain's in a weird spot. Uh, and then uh, uh, Monera Mason uh, upped her pledge this week as well. Uh, we're up to uh, 310 backers and uh, <clears throat> 1861 on, um, on, on the board. I still haven't written the people whose credit cards got declined yet, so uh, maybe maybe I'll find the wherewithal to do that this weekend, along with doing taxes and spreadsheet stuff. Probably not. Um, so you know, just just going along, going along. Um, let's do some stuff after the interview. I'll bring you up to speed on what's going on with here. And uh, at this point, I will tell you everyone should go look at all the all the now playings on No Pro. Uh, Los Angeles is uh, just popping right now. Uh, there's work from JFI that's up. We've got new work from E3W. Ceaseless Fun just announced a show. Uh, the Nest just had some more tickets go on sale. Like, it's a, it's a busy, busy spring. Oh, and then we're doing that little Summit and Festival thing uh, at the end of March. Which, yes, there are still tickets available. Um, we're starting to run out. Uh, and there's a lot of people who said that they want to buy who haven't bought yet. So if you're one of those, um, now's a good time to, uh, to, to, to pull the trigger on that. Uh, before they go away, because uh, that's going to be, you, you know, just don't 
don't don't don't no one come to me and on march 20th and be like oh i just really need a ticket it's like you a month ago a month ago you had a chance so just remember that um okay also uh it makes our planning easier because we're not doing a lot of sponsorship uh this year so we're making we're making budget choices right now uh so how good it is depends on uh, when people buy. So there are, there are thresholds here. I'm a very pragmatic producer when it comes to things. Um, it is, the, it is the one thing in life that I'm pragmatic about. <laughs> Everything else is completely unreasonable, including the existence of the show. Uh, all right. So with that in mind, let's, uh, jump into the episode. <laughs> All right, so this is Catherine Yu of No Persinium, and today on the show we have Jessica Crean, a multi-hyphenate artist. Uh, Jessica, can you describe yourself for our audience if they're not familiar with your work? Sure. I am a game designer and an immersive theater artist, and I usually do those two things simultaneously. So I have a company that I founded called I Can't Koan, and the whole idea is that we explore complex systems in the world that usually make us feel disempowered and find ways to make them really playful. So the primary means of doing that is through playable theater. So it's a lot of games and game design elements that are wrapped up in theatrical narratives. So wait, do you consider yourself more of a theater person or a game design person, Jessica? Solidly both. Yeah, to hell with the boxes. I like them both. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we can start with um, your background and how you landed in this weird, immersive world of ours. Yeah. So I started off as a theater kid. I've been a theater kid my whole life. And I ran a theater company when I was in college and loved it, but I was studying political communications and thought I was going to be a campaign manager and a speechwriter and was just wrong about that. It was too much structure for me, too much like set things that must get said. So I ended up being a director for a while and um, did a lot of assistant directing on and off Broadway in New York and just had this feeling that something was missing. And I wanted to find a way to make theater as fun for an audience as it was for the people who were making it in the room. So I went back to grad school for devised ensemble physical theater, which is a fun little mouthful. And my last semester (laughs) of school at the Pig Iron Conservatory down in Philadelphia, I took this class on uh, the history of games. And it completely and totally changed my whole life and my whole way of thinking about the world. And it was like this last little piece of this puzzle of the way that I wanted to make work kind of fell into place by just introducing the idea of agency, um, that the audience members could have an active role in the making of and the sharing of and the experience of a play. And it just kind of blew my mind. And I'd been making things that I had been calling immersive for a little while, but like the rest of us, the immersive hadn't really been defined at that point. Oh, sorry. I had been calling it site specific, but it was actually immersive. It was not site specific work because we didn't really have that term uh, five or six years ago. So I had been secretly unbeknownst to me doing immersive work for a while, but now there is a, a beautiful phrase for it. So when you say you'd been secretly doing immersive work, like what kinds of things were you playing with before you realized hey, there's like words for this and I want to have more game design elements in my practice. 
The first piece that I made that I would call immersive was a piece for the Philadelphia Fringe Festival in, I think, like 2014. And it was a piece called Capacity for Veracity. And um, it was it was immersive. It was There was no fourth wall. And it was lightly narrative. And there were a few elements of gameplay, but really it was just following the story of a family uh, and their, the many secrets that this family held. And the audience was pretty free to wander through the space. And I constructed this whole crazy sort of pillow fort for it in which I played a five-year-old and uh, started handing out condoms to everyone who came into the fort um, and asked oh them to like, go retrieve candy for me. I had like found these, like my character was like, oh, I found these weird bags in my dad's bedroom. And so I would just like send people off with lubricated condoms, which is so weird and gross. And so they would have to go find candy in the space and come back to me. And then I would give them gifts. It was a, it was a weird little piece, but fun. And uh, where, so after going down the, condom fort rabbit hole uh where where did you go to next <laughs> I was in grad school when I when I did this piece and um and so I was still I was in school for the next couple of years doing a lot of mask training and character work and um and then my last semester I, I had this games course and so we had to make two games for that class and they were both both of the games that I made were highly theatrical so both of them are still games that I, I run today. One of them is Schrodinger's Cat, which is uh, sort of an, an an infinite tabletop game. So it's a board game, but you can play it anywhere between five minutes and beyond the natural lifespan of the players. So it's super weird. And then the other one was based on Romeo and Juliet, and it's a, a digital RPG. So you play on your cell phone, you play with a stranger, and basically live out with a stranger the five days that Romeo and Juliet, the play takes place over. So it's all about intimacy and otherness. And what does it take to develop this intimate connection with someone who you you've never met before and don't know and who's a stranger. And so I could have had a teacher that, that told me that those things weren't games or that it was just too weird and I should probably stop doing what I was doing. But instead I had a really encouraging game professor who said, you're, you're onto something strange and you should keep doing it. And I think if he hadn't told me those things, I would have never felt empowered to even consider myself to be a game designer or go down this route or be a part of this community. So I owe him a great deal. And I think that it was through that empowerment through games that made me really start to feel confident and excited about uh, about immersive theater was the fact that I was also excited about exploring games in theater. Yeah, awesome. And I will say a quick sidebar so you and I first met, I think, at Indicate East a few years back, where I played your Schrodinger's game. Yeah. And I believe because I have not opened the container, does that count? Like, am I still playing it oh, years later? You're definitely still playing. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of reminds me, because I've seen some of your other work, um, a lot of it is deeply philosophical and trying to change the way that people look at life. And so it does kind of permeate outside the the magic circle, so to speak. So could you talk a little bit about like how that through line has really come to life for you? Yeah, absolutely. I really like the idea that that play is is always and everywhere. I think there are a lot of things that we take really seriously in the world because we live in serious and consequential times when our actions, we can sort of see the impact of our actions on other people, on the environment, in politics. And so there's a lot of pressure to get things right and to to create change. 
But if we make, if we try to enact change based on our fear of getting things wrong or our fear of how the world will work or our fear of what other people will do, then we tend to make fear-based decisions, which are often very protective and uh, have the effect of othering. Um, it's very easy when you're making fear-based decisions to to protect people that you know and love or communities that you know and love without taking a, a broader look at, at who we're protecting in the world. But if we're making decisions based on joy or play, then we tend to make better decisions for everyone. So a lot of the, the work that I'm interested in is just how to take things that are sort of scary um, or hard to conceptualize and make them really playful so that we can use that play in our real lives and we can take our playful attitudes and apply them to things that are scary or hard to think through, including like climate change and math and science and uh, basically anything that feels risky or scary. So I think that is a perfect segue into a show you've been running for a long time now, which currently has a monthly residence at Caveat on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Chaos Theory. So let's talk chaos. Always. Yeah. Do you want to, should I talk about the show? Yeah. Great. My favorite. Um, so Chaos Theory is a show that I made in 2018 is when it started. And we've had a, a home at Caveat for the last year now, which has been so amazing. They really are like family at this point. Um, so we've been really lucky to find a, a good fit there. And the show is all about the feelings of chaos in our lives. Um, particularly just what it is like to be a human in now 2020 and the kind of crazy chaos that it feels like to have to be a part of, of this world at such a, such a wild time mixed with the math and the science and the order of chaos theory, which is um, sort of like a mathematical model set forth to explain why things that appear to be unpredictable are actually quite predictable. So it's all about this balance of order and chaos and, how we create systems that uh, that work for us within times of great uncertainty. But not only that, uh, you star in the show. You yes. are kind of facilitating discussion, moderating what's happening, while also kind of telling a story. So how did uh, how how did this character come about, and how much of the character is you? versus not. <laughs> That's like the number one question I get. Everyone is like 100% sure that they know which parts are are from my life. And there are definitely sprinklings of it throughout because it's it's a very narrative piece. It really follows this this character, Dr. Sayak, on her journey um, with with the audience's help. Um, so it's sort of she's a she's a professional chaologist, which is a real thing. It's a person who studies chaos theory, and it, it, the piece starts out as a lecture on chaos theory, but quickly is totally derailed by the fact that she is just a, like a really nerdy scientist and not very good at getting her point across. So she ends up running a bunch of experiments for the audience that are just games. Um, and so the audience plays through these games about different aspects of chaos theory that are all these physical, social, multiplayer games that people can opt into. And it sort of culminates in this uh, a series of games that asks the audience to apply what they have uh, experienced and learned about chaos theory to the feelings of chaos in their own lives. So this character I play is, is the guide and she takes everyone on this journey. And a lot of that is through modeling what it looks like to live a life of chaos in uh, a number of different ways. 
So I think maybe one aspect that may not be coming through is, at least for me, I found the show to be really just also very funny. Yeah, it's it's definitely, it's 100% straight up comedy. Um, it's, I mean, it gets darker. It's dark comedy at times, but part of the, the fun and the challenge of making this piece was that there's so much sort of atmospheric, moody, ambiance immersive out there. And so I wanted to add to the, the growing roster of joyful, immersive um, things that are just really fun and playful and have great meaning to them, but can tell a story in ways that like make us laugh and bring people together through, uh, through these moments of joyful connection. It's super so, silly and weird sometimes, but that is my oh, jam. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so maybe we can unpack. I'm trying to think of the may, the first game that you really um, put people through. If you could explain the rules of the circle. Sure, yeah. So it's a game about uh, this really heady idea of sensitivity to initial conditions, uh, which means nothing. Those words mean nothing. So I set about when I was first Wait. making the piece. Sure. I. I you you fooled me. I thought that that was real. Oh, it is. Sensitivity to initial conditions is a real thing. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> so it it is real, but it doesn't, those words just don't really, uh, they don't evoke an image, I guess. They don't have um, like a very powerful narrative effect on us as humans. Mm-hmm. So I, I set out to make a game about sensitivity to initial conditions, uh, in addition to a bunch of other aspects of chaos theory, like strange attractors and the butterfly effect. And so in this particular game, um, it's all about this idea that the place that you start at can lead you in a, a million different directions. And so the audience, uh, the, the players of the game are set with this task of either of drawing a circle. They have to draw the world's best circle. That's it. Super simple. Um, but they also have to choose for themselves these individual roles. So they can choose to be someone who gets the circle drawn at all costs They can choose to be someone who uh, makes sure the circle does not get drawn at all costs. They can choose to be the person who claims as much credit as possible for the circle while doing the least amount of actual work on the circle. Or they can try to just seduce everyone in their group, in the other group, or in the whole rest of the audience. Uh, So they have these like global goals, but then these really personal goals that they're trying to enact, which uh, of course leads to just total, total madness for a couple of minutes while the game is running. And there's a bunch of other stuff that's going on as the game is running too. So it's just this, this like visceral moment of, of chaos that is, that we try to embody. So we have this sort of like baseline, this is what chaos is for us and for this piece. So one thing that I noticed while going through the experience is the way that you're kind of lettering the audience through, um, you know, people show up, maybe they have like a glass of wine or something or a beer. And initially, not that many people are participating. And then somehow you wave a magic wand. And like by the end of the show, I feel like everyone's just eating out of the palm of your hand. How do you do that? Oh my God, so much playtesting, so much practice. Um yeah, I mean, the show was really bad before it got good. It just had to go through, it took a lot of rewriting was really what the process was like. Um, it's all in the writing. It's all in finding these moments of of heart and soul in the piece. Um, modeling behavior is a big part of it. Uh, I can't be asking an audience to be taking risks if I'm not willing to do it myself. So there's a lot of that in the piece. There's a lot of that that I, Jessica, put into the writing of it and a lot that my character 
does as well. Um, and at a certain point I got directors and they're amazing. Amy Blumberg and Joe Ahmed came on and, uh, they helped me take all the million things that were going on in my brain and turn it into a piece that feels really cohesive and has like a true, a true story arc for this character and still leaves all kinds of open space for audiences to have their own wild and hopefully very magical experiences in the piece. We've had some so, crazy stuff happen. I um, was just about to ask that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had people, we, people have fallen in love. Multiple people have come and fallen in love at the show. There's just a lot of intimacy that, that the show opens up space for between participants. Um, two people fell in love at the first show and they still email me regularly. They come see everything that, that I work on now. They're still together. I'm very happy. Um, and we have had people start companies and adopt pets and get tattoos and shave their head and um, form lasting friendships and talk to people they hadn't talked to in you know many many years. So it's just it's a very personal. It ends up being a very personal experience for for a lot of folks who come through. But like that wasn't necessarily your goal. Like you didn't say, "Oh, I'm going to make a show about." changing people's lives per se I think going back to what you're saying earlier you wanted to kind of unlock the magic that is already inside a lot of us is, is that accurate I think both things were true I think I've, I've always been interested in like you were saying before in, in breaking down this idea of a magic circle this idea that there's playtime and then there's the rest of your life um, I think those things coexist often and can coexist much more and so the piece I didn't necessarily start out as having a goal of being particularly socially action oriented, but as soon as I started delving into this material and really looking at what chaos does to us and starting to reframe how I think about chaos, so it was less about what it is going to, how it's going to destroy me or the world and started thinking about it more as like a tool to being a little bit wilder and riskier and a little bit actually more myself and more capable of following a path that I wanted to follow in life, the more it became clear to me that, that this was really a piece about personal transformation. And from what you've been saying, it sounds like you yourself feel as if the pieces, like working on the pieces also transform you in a way. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's really, it has asked me to hold myself to a much higher standard of being a chaos agent than I would otherwise have. Um, I feel like the, the piece really has become a part of me. I think about it all the time, uh, not just while I'm performing it, but the, I want to make sure that the things that I'm talking about as an artist are the things that I'm, I'm living in practice, partially because I don't want to be a hypocrite also because I believe them. And also because I feel like my own life is a little bit of a play test for this sort of material. What is it like to to live your art and what is it like to to live uh, joyfully in moments of uncertainty? And, and I think anyone who anyone who is alive that tends to resonate with, and certainly there's a particular brand of it for those of us who are artists and creators about being not necessarily comfortable, but welcoming uncertainty into our lives. So that's become definitely like a through line of of how I how I live and how I create nowadays. So speaking of kind of uh, inviting discomfort in, chaos theory is a like style in the style of a TED Talk slash meetup for mathematicians, but you actually did something pretty risky at an actual TED Talk. Do you want to tell our audience about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
definitely this is spoilers here. Who knew you could have spoilers for a TED Talk, but here we are. Um, yeah, I gave a TED Talk on um, on the show, which is like a weird little meta thing to have made a show about a fake TED Talk. And uh, that's about like a woman who essentially is like a character who's kicked out of conferences because she's too unconventional uh, for, for mainstream science. And uh, then ended up being able to give this actual real TED Talk based on the fact that I made this weird thing about being too unconventional for TED Talks. So it was really delightful <laughs> to be able to give this to give this talk. Um, and there was a lot of chaos in it because I didn't actually decide what I was doing for sure until the moment, the, the morning of the talk. Um, and it was all about this, this idea of embracing uncertainty through play. And so I ended up... Um, in the sort of act of what does it look like to really take a risk, uh, cutting off about two and a half feet of hair of my oh, hair. <laughs> I was long as like down way past my butt and I cut it up to about shoulder length, uh, in this, you know, like 10 minute part of this 10 minute Ted talk. So I managed to cram in like two games, some higher level talk about play and and risk and also just give myself a haircut. Um, there was a crazy conspiracy theory too that I heard out in the in the audience. People came back to me and they're like, "Oh, so that you didn't really do it though, right? Like it was just uh, it was just because you're you're a theater person, so that was all tricks, right?" And I was like, "Oh no, my god, no, no! I really did. That was very real." Um, yeah, so I had to. People thought that it was too even that I had done too good a job giving myself a haircut. And so they didn't believe it, but it was real. I did it and it was terrifying. It's a little thing like this. It's just, yeah, these ideas of, of identity, it's, it's only hair. And yet it's hair that I have been growing for a decade and, and felt so much a part of me. So there are these, these little ways to just sort of change and, and transform that I'm, I'm very interested in as well as sort of like larger social change. That is amazing. Well, maybe it's time for you to talk about uh, your slightly newer show that you did at Philly Fringe pretty recently, Know Thyself. Yeah, uh, Know Thyself has been uh, such a trip. It's we had a we ran in the Philly Fringe this year, then September for a couple of weeks, and uh, the show is currently in development uh, right now for a second run, which I'm super excited about. Um, details on that later, but. Uh, Basically, it's a show about philosophy and whether or not we are sort of living up to our own ethical standards. Um, but it's all this uh, series of like super playful games. So I made my first museum to make this piece. I had no idea I was going to do that when I started. Uh, but the the show takes the form of a sort of a pop up of philosophy museum. And so instead of going to a museum where you would uh, go and read things about a philosopher or see primary documents or things that they wrote or whatever else they do in museums, you play games that are based on the philosophies of uh, sort of famous uh, ancient and contemporary philosophers. And based on the choices that you make in each of these games at each of these galleries, it will determine where you go next in the piece. And I play the curator of the tour, your tour, your tour guide, your docent, and we'll sort of curate these uh, these tour experiences for for small groups that are based on these different philosophies. And it's all game form, and it's all again like comedy is a, a big part of it. There's a lot of humor in it, but it's also um, there. It takes on some some pretty serious material as well. 
there's, I tended to focus on philosophers who get uh, not a lot of note in the canon, namely like women and non-binary and philosophers of color. So they make up the bulk of the piece because those are the philosophies that I think we need to be paying the most attention to nowadays and the ones who tend to get written out of, of history. So it's a lot of games based on really amazing, fascinating philosophers who are dealing with ethics and uh, systems of injustice in the world. And it's all in game form. Uh, so that was a super fun and wild series of challenges to create each of these exhibits. And I made about 60 games, I think, to start. Oh my gosh. Last summer. And then, uh, of course, pared it down to, uh, there are currently probably about 20 possible games in the piece. And I think that that will grow a little bit also in the next couple months. And you said that the audience can kind of control the way that the experience unfolds. How does that work? To some extent, it depends on the choices that they make in game. So yes, there is definitely absolutely for sure agency. And so much of it is about the choices we make and the choices that we pass on making, which in and of itself, of course, are choices. Um, So you play with a partner. And so you have a partner that you're going through this whole experience with. And uh, and so you are sort of developing these bonds of intimacy and exploring sort of complex subject matter together, but also as a part of, of the whole group. So there are games based on Judith, Judith Jarvis Thompson's trolley problem, which is one of the more famous philosophical thought experiments about, you know, what do you do if there's a trolley rocketing down the tracks uh, and there's one person on one track that, uh, and there's five people on the track that you are currently on, do you shift tracks to kill just one person and save the other five? Or do you just let let things run their course, hit the five people, but not actually have to flip a switch. So there's a lot of philosophical thought experiments that are involved in the piece. So what would you do kind of moments, as well as what have you done and what are you doing? So there are very, there's a lot of active looking at, at what kinds of philosophical standards we currently live by and if we're cool with that or if we want to change those things. And how did the audience react to a philosophy slash comedy slash immersive interactive theme to show. <laughs> oh God, when you put it that way. Yeah, I sound so eccentric, but yeah, absolutely. We had great responses. Um, two back-to-back shows, we had people come out and the first people who came out said, oh, that really made us think. And it was like a Friday night and I was like, oh, you didn't want that. You were not here to think. I don't know what you were thinking coming to a philosophy piece, but you were not, you did not want to be deeply considering your life. And then the next people who came out were like, oh my God, that was, that was wild. That really made us think. And I was like, okay, all right, we're good. This is a fine balance. I'm okay with this. Um, I still have people stopping me on the street, uh, like sometimes with joy and sometimes with kind of like this combination of like joy rage of like, uh, oh, you did that philosophy piece. I can't stop thinking about that piece. And they're like kind of upset about it, but also also glad. So it's definitely evoking some strong reactions. And I think that that's a good thing. Yeah, it sounds like you made a, an impact at least. Well, I've never heard of that rage joy. Yeah, that that might not be a real thing, but it feels like it. That's the, that's the energy coming off. <laughs> so in terms of the way that you design um, experiences, where do, where do you start? Um, how do you figure out how to get something from your idea to like a live working show. Since I know a lot of people are interested in incorporating more game-like elements into their theater pieces. 
it just seems like uh, they, you know, would use some advice to get from point A to point B. Yeah, I think the thing that that got me started on bringing games into into a storytelling, a primarily storytelling medium, uh, is that people are not always people are making a ton of choices every day. We're all making choices constantly, but it doesn't always feel good or meaningful, purposeful or playful. And so this idea that we can craft experiences and set up these places where choices can be where our choices really do matter is such a cornerstone of the immersive theater experience and of games that it feels like such a natural uh, relationship between them that of course we would be developing these experiences for people to be taking uh, taking risks and adopting sort of like a temporary new way of living to be able to test out what it would feel like to make choices in this particular way. That's definitely where Know Thyself sort of got some of some of its heart from was this idea that we kind of want to be testing out new ways of living. And so in what environment can we actually do that in a way that is like safe and ethical? And immersive theater spaces are, I think, one of the few spaces that actually really provide that for us. Not all of them, not always, but it certainly has the potential to. And so that's really exciting to me about this particular uh, confluence of things. But in terms of like getting started, um, I like having... I will start with anything like you could hand me a spoon and I'll immediately make a spoon game or like, you know, like a twig. And I'm like, great, I'm on it. I will make you a twig game. Uh, I just like looking at things and figuring out sort of like what their, their soul game might be. I do it for people too. I'll just like make people games based on who they are as a human. So I, I think it's really just sort of about sort of like recognizing the essence of something and what its essential action is in the world. Games are all about action. So what is the action that is like really important or necessary to explain or talk about or get to the heart of a particular idea? Is that too vague? That might be too vague. No, no, I don't think it's that vague at all. Um, kind of want to rewind a little bit back to the beginning of what you just said now about making it a safe space for people to kind of perform it live their life in a different way. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned in making that safe space that you can share? I think one of the big ones is that, um, that we can't pretend that it's not temporary or that it's not a tool. Like, yes, definitely immersive theater and games have the, the power to transform us, but we're never going to be anybody that we're not. And so this idea that like we can come in and play as this character, or this role that is someone very, very different from us, yeah, that can change us. That can absolutely open up our our minds and our hearts. But also there's no way of knowing if we're modeling, if we're taking on a character of someone who is similar to someone who really exists in the world, then it's dangerous, I think, to say that like, oh, now I understand this experience. I had someone talk to me, this is about D&D, but uh, someone told me fairly recently that they they always play D&D. Whenever they play D&D, they play as a female character. This was like a, a male identifying human. And uh, he always plays as a female character. And, and that's how he knows what the experience of being a woman is. And so I was sort of like sitting there listening to this, like trying to bite my tongue for a little while and then quickly realizing that I couldn't oh, wow. do it. Um, and just sort of probing this idea that like, okay, who are you playing with? Oh, you're playing with all men. You're playing in a room with all men. You're playing at this idea of being female. You're not even playing being female. It's just these, your ideas that are not being challenged at all about what it's like to be a woman. So I think that, that 
we can fall into this trap really easily in games and immersive theater and role playing where we experience something for a short time and think that we know everything or enough. And that's never, ever true. <laughs> so I think that part of the what immersive theater can do is just open up very transparently a little window into saying, okay, give this a go with the full understanding that this is a tool to help understand the world. It is not the end-all, be-all of understanding it. That would take a lifetime, and we need to, to sit with that in a, a many, many different ways. But it still provides this space to to attempt to make choices based on value sets that aren't our own or to have to respond to situations in a way that we wouldn't unless we were in this particular environment. So I think it's more of a it's more a training ground than it is like a solution for a lack of empathy in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And in terms of the the choices um it seems like you do give people quite a bit of freedom to respond um, however they may choose to in the moment. How do you, how do you manage like how narrow or wide the, the choice set is? That's a great question. It depends on what the moment calls for. Um, there are, I think I try to utilize sort of all ends of the spectrum on this. If there, if at the moment in the piece is about having a million choices in front of us and having to figure out how to make choices or what criteria we choose to make choices, then I'll try and craft that moment in such a way that it it highlights and draws attention to and really points at this idea that that we are overwhelmed by choices and try to provide some framework, not necessarily for a solution, but for a way to think through these moments. So that it's not just um, like a metaphor for these things, it will really provide some tools for for how to how we can use how how we can behave when we're in these moments in the real world not in a way that is heavy-handed or doesn't fit the theme like it would still be so 100% in world otherwise there's no point in doing it um but it would be that kind of like meaningful mechanic is usually what we refer to it in in the game world this idea that the the actions that we are taking totally match the story at hand and and the emotions that we are trying to evoke in that moment and if it's not about that, if it's not about the gajillion choices we have, if it's just about having to choose between one or two or a couple of things, then ideally I would probably just try to create a circumstance in which the audience is very clear on why they're making the choices that they're making so that it's not, um, it doesn't feel purposeless. Like they're not choosing between like the left and the right door for no good reason. They're choosing between, you know, the door with like a soft soft music and like a beautiful candlelight coming through or the door with a, you know, a brass band playing behind it on the other side. Like they will choose their experience based on what they want and what they know about themselves and potentially about the story as well. Yeah, definitely. It seems like you're trying to bring a lot of structure to it. So people don't feel like they're wandering about lost in the dark. Although I'm, I'm sure that must happen once in a while. You you, how do you how do you bring an audience back on track if people are kind of losing their minds? Oh gosh, I've had I've had one show of chaos theory where I lost the audience early. Um, it was such a learning experience for me. <gasps> oh no, I was I was kind of my character. She's an authority figure, and so and that is necessary. Like people need her to be an authority figure to feel safe and to know that someone is watching out for them in this piece. Um, and I said something a little bit snarky too soon in the piece. And 
some audiences I think would have like laughed it off and it would have been great. But this particular audience was just like, oh. and I was like, oh no. <laughs> and it really just drove home this idea that this character in particular has to come 100% and totally from a place of love. Like she has to need and love the audience. And that's it. Like that has to be her driving force. And so even though I knew that, that moment really like viscerally drove that home for me. Um, so bringing them back on board was this, just this process of give, 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 give the whole time, because I know that there are asks in the piece. And so they have to feel like deeply loved and supported. They are in fact, deeply loved and supported throughout the piece in order to, to get to that place. So weird and cliche, but it really just sort of stems like having, having the audience on board stems from me deeply and genuinely caring about them the whole time. And ideally hoping that they will like deeply and genuinely care about this character too. Oh, definitely. And the other just thing that really strikes me, especially from your performance as Dr. Sayok in Chaos Theory is how vulnerable she is and how it's, you know, she's, she's in front of everyone. And it's kind of like saying being vulnerable is okay. And I think, I mean, personally, I think that's a really clever way of drawing us in and, you know, making it feel like, um, I described it to a friend as like this temporary community that you make once a month in a basement bar on the Lower East Side. So if you could talk more about that. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. That's like definitely, that's definitely the goal is that we sort of end up feeling like a a real, like a real cohort, like a real community by the end of that. Um, And that does usually come to pass in in a number of, of different ways. And so I think in terms of the vulnerability yeah, it feels really important that um, that she that this character be willing to to open up to the audience so that they can see that if she is willing to take risks and sort of like take conquer her own fears and take it to like a level ten on um on a just a vulnerability scale, then the audience feels empowered to take their own actions up to like a four or a five or a six. Some people will will go up to a 10, but it really is just saying, okay, you need to, we need to, I need to show you that this thing that I am asking can be done and that I am willing to do it myself. And so there is this vulnerability of the character in the piece that is very much mine as well. But there are also all of these vulnerabilities behind the scenes that, um, that I don't, that don't come across necessarily in the piece. Um, Dinosaurs play a role in the piece. I, Jessica, have a genuine fear of dinosaurs. And so making a piece about chaos theory, people kept asking, oh, have you seen Jurassic Park? And I was like, yeah, I was five. I still have recurring nightmares. But eventually I just sat back down and and watched it because I felt like I, again, was already making this piece about asking people to, to take a look at the things that that are really uncertain or scary in their lives. So I have to do it too. And so there are, there are a bunch of those that are sort of scattered throughout chaos theory. You were asking maybe how much of the, how many of these things are, are me, how much of her is me. I think that there are just a little elements of my life that get sprinkled through, through lines and through, through lines. Um, so she feels very woven into my life, but is still her own separate crazy character, but we've grown up together. That's great. Do you ever think that you would, I don't know, stop it, stop making interactive work, stop making work that really um, involves the audience? Not that I can see. I really love it. Um, and I have a million other projects in the works and ideas and 
things that I'm I'm caring about that still it still seems like playable theater and games and immersive experiences are are the best way the best medium for this. Um, it's funny being you know a multi hyphenate artist over here that I've I've often described myself often as being um, medium agnostic. The the form will fit the story that needs to get told or the thing that needs to that I, I need to say or or um, or whatever it is that like is the the heart of, of of a piece, and so it definitely feels right now like those things are games and immersive experiences, and it might be that at a certain point another medium also makes sense to to add into the mix. But I can't see a time when I would ever want to stop doing this. Well, I hope that you never do. Um, do you have any advice for maybe young theater makers who want to get into games, or games folks who think that you know they're performance is this rich area that they have yet to tap into. Yeah, I'd say the the number one thing that the words that I live by and have been living by for years are this great uh, game design phrase, fail faster. Do you know this one? Faster. Okay. Yeah. They're just, yeah, these are, this is what I live by. Uh, It's the idea that we're going to fail no matter what. And failure is amazing. Game designers are really, really good at this. We're like, oh yeah, failed hard today. Failed hard again. Tried this other thing. Totally failed. But it's all about growth. Like it's all about this understanding that that each failure is its own wonderful learning opportunity. And in theater, I had gotten really accustomed to not bringing an audience in until like the dress rehearsal or previews for a show. In which case, you are months in and have been living in this insular little bubble. But Fail Faster says no to that. It says bring people in immediately. Bring people into the process way before you're ready when you're abjectly, absolutely terrified to do something. And so I try to do that even though it scares the ever-loving shit out of me. Uh, Every time (laughs) I have to play test something and I know that it's like raw and problematic and I'm bringing my friends in and I'm plying them with like booze and pretzels and fruit and whatever else I've got on hand is like a thank you for please coming to test this thing while I'm in the process of making it. And there have been so many that have gone badly and I don't regret a single one of them. Like painfully badly. I had a terrible play test last month. People were, it was just a, it was a game, but people were like, are we done yet? Is it over? And I'm sitting there. I was like, mm, nope. I mean, yes, we're done. Cause you're miserable. But, um, but the playtest before that, we had had this kind of like raucous party of a playtest, in which case, and people didn't want to stop playing, and it was just a complete 180. So I've managed to make this weird piece that is both torturous to some and a party to others. And that's information. That means that I can use that in the next iteration of the piece. I will also say in the vein of, and in defense of Fail Faster, one of the early playtests for Know Thyself Last summer, I brought in a bunch of my friends, too many friends. Don't don't bring too many in at a time. That's also my advice. <laughs> I had like 12 of my friends there and was running a very early version of the piece for them. And we got to the end and I asked a question about impressions and there was just dead silence. And I was like, well, shit. Uh, and they were they had almost nothing to say like there was nothing even constructive to add they just hadn't followed it uh and didn't care and so they all left and i you know like had my smiling face on of like thank you so useful really appreciate you being here and i had prepped them for how rough it was and it doesn't matter no one will ever be prepared for how rough your work is until they experience it 
And then because they're amazing friends, they all came to the show, even having experienced that play test. And I, I was getting emails and calls from them and text messages for days about how they couldn't believe how far it had come or the fact that it had gone from what they had experienced just you know a month before to the piece that existed when they came to see it. And that that in and of itself was inspiring and encouraging about what can actually what can be accomplished if you really like put your heart and your soul into something and allow things to, to be bad for a while so that they can get good. Uh, and that was incredibly meaningful to me that they, that a, that they had showed up in the first place, but also that they were so moved by the, by the final product and also being a part of the process. So I think even in these moments where it feels really scary and hard to, to put work out there, it's important to know that you'll always have a chance to bring people back. And that that's also a part of the job and can be a really motivating factor. So fail fast, fail fast, fail constantly, fail faster. That is a beautiful story. Wow. So we've been at this for a while. Is there anything else that you want to say before I let you take some well-deserved uh, naps? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to, to be talking to you today. Well, thank you so much. Jessica Crean, multi-hyphenate artist. Check out Chaos Theory. Um, caveat, NYC. I think the next one is in early March. March 6th, first Thursdays of the month, 7 right, p.m. So first Thursday of the month. If you don't catch it in March, catch it in April or May. Um, and once again, thank you so much, Jessica. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Catherine. Once again, I want to thank Jessica Crean for being our guest and for Catherine for jumping in and doing the host duties this week as we um, as we work to to get a, a, a pile of podcasts ready to go for you all. Um, one of the main reasons why we're running behind, uh, one of them is uh, that uh, we are deep into production mode on the Here Summit and Festival, uh, which I mentioned at the top. Um, that includes the, uh, workshop, uh, and festival picker, which, uh, document, which goes out this weekend, probably closer to Sunday than Saturday. Uh, no, no worries there about when you receive it. If you're someone who's, uh, coming to the festival, um, the, the process by which, you know, figuring out how to make the selections is based on when people, uh, <clears throat> bought their tickets or signed up. It's one of the ways that we weight it. We also weight it based on like where you're coming from, uh, what you've seen, when you're around, what you haven't seen, trying, trying what you pick, right? Like what you request is your first pick, you know, uh, and, and, and a whole kind of multi algorithmic process, which is mostly going to be me staring at spreadsheets going like, uh, so yeah, that's, that's going to be fun. Get to look forward to doing that in a couple of weeks and, uh, trying to find the optimal path for everybody. Uh, apparently I've decided to become a travel agent in my old age. Um, so that's something that's coming down, uh, the pike here. And, uh, and yeah, uh, another reason if you are, are sitting on the fence and you're like, oh, I think I'm going to buy, uh, and I, I, trust me, I get like, if you're like, oh, wow, it's a lot of money and I can't do it or I'm waiting to see it's like, oh, hi, I'd be in, I'd be in your shoes. Uh, if I wasn't, uh, looking at the spreadsheets, um, that's exactly where I would be. Um, the the I'm gonna get into something that I didn't intend on getting into today at all, uh, and just just you know special for the folks who listen to the back back end of the podcast. 
Um, I've been off a step uh, for most of this uh, past like month and a half or so. Um, uh, for, uh, for, for a messed up reason. Um, there's some medical stuff going on with my mom. I don't want to get into the details. It does mean that, uh, and, and she's going to be fine. Uh, there are surgeries involved, but she's going to be fine. Um, but anyone who's gone through, um, you know, uh, you know, surgery stuff with a family member, uh, particularly an elderly family member, or when you are, uh, the one person. Um, because, uh, I got my mom, my mom's got me and that's it. That's our family. That's, that's who we have. Like the rest of the family is very, very far away. My mom lives, I, I brought her down a year ago. Um, and, uh, there's just been like a, you know, a stack and some, I might've mentioned, you know, last year she had some heart issues. She was in the hospital for a while. Uh, that was right when I left the day job and, um, it's, it, it affects the, the, you know, if you lose three hours on, on a Tuesday, uh, on a short week, and, uh, you, that means you lost three hours on a Tuesday. And, uh, when there's a lot of plates spinning, uh, it means you spend a lot of time getting those plates back up to speed. No plates have dropped yet. Thank God. Uh, but it is affecting our service right now. And, you know, I will admit not the best time, not the best timing. Um, you know, we, we were already going to be impacted on what we're doing at no pro, uh, by what's going on at here. And, um, the good news is, is like, I can keep up, um, I'm frazzled and, uh, it often means, you know, by keep up, I mean, we're only two days late. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what's going on. Um, it also means that like, you know, <laughs> if I, if I go to something and I'm like, oh, eh, I, I'm, I wind up like pushing off writing about it. So, um, you know, there's, there's another thing that's happening. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name anything at the moment. Uh, but if I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you, you, you want mostly, mostly to keep like the mean version of me from coming out, because like you know, when I get stressed, I can get mean. I can get very catty. Uh, the the other writers at NoPro and my friends know exactly what I'm talking about. He's like, but he never has a bad word to say. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, I am human. Um, okay. So yeah, I just, I don't, I I also feel weird like talking about it, but honestly I felt at a certain point, if I don't say something, uh, if I don't explain, uh, what I perceive to be some, uh, inconsistencies in behavior, at least to you, our loyal podcast listeners, um, that, 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 yeah, you know, like it's, no, it's not, it's not that uh, running the festival and summit is 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 too much for me, and I'm cracking under the strain of that. <laughs> not at all. Um, that I mean, maybe that would have been happening, uh, but um, there's there's a there's a fair amount of time each week that's um, and and because of the pace of where things are at the moment, each week there's there's some doctor's appointment that's got to be dealt with. And I don't know if you've been to doctor's offices lately, but sometimes they don't have Wi-Fi. Um, so you're sitting there and you're trying to get your work done and it's just not happening. So, um, or there's no parking at the, uh, medical facility. So you gotta like go park like three blocks away and there's no signal there. So, um, or you can't bust your laptop out on the side of a street while you wait to pick your mother up. So yeah. Um, and that's, is definitely affecting my mood. Um, I'm surly. I'm just surly these days. Uh, and I don't have time for guff, guff, um, and it's not like the world as a whole is, I mean, have you looked at the new, boof, boof, 
Um, and there isn't even like a Star Wars movie to look forward to. Like Clone Wars comes out today. I'm like, okay, like, you know, I have a very mixed relationship with Clone Wars because, um, yeah, narratively it's better than the prequels were, but then it like winds up sort of like contradicting the prequels. So it's, it's weird, man. It's just always been weird. Um, and, and I think this, this seventh season is only going to make it weirder. But anyway, um, that's what I wanted to kind of give you all update. I was going to do this as an irregular, but like, why, why just take the, the people who, who pay uh, the, the privilege of, of listening to those to, to torture them with this information? Um, yeah, that's what's up. Um, it, it's also why we're recording a podcast uh, over the phone as opposed to doing something in person, because uh, that's the the rough thing is on when it comes to time, the podcast takes a lot of time. So uh, we want to do it right. That being said, we are in a booking cycle right now and we've got some folks and we should be getting a couple of things in the can next week and getting things all tidied up uh, to carry us through to the summit and festival, uh, which I am getting excited about. Like when I'm, when I'm down in the spreadsheets and I'm looking at stuff, I'm like, and, and I'm in there, I'm like, what's going on? And it's like, we got to move money from here to there. And, uh, and then looking and going like, oh good, like more people pop tickets. Great. Now, now I can pay for lunch. Um, as that's the mode we're in right now. Uh, like the good news is, is like all the things that we have to do, um, like the, the money's there for. So like you just, just. I just put the credit card down on the on the the hotel rooms for for some of the some of the guests who are flying in from from out and like you know we we've, we've paid for the the folks that were flying in and you know we're we're you know making sure we've got the you know the parking stuff you know sorted like all the things that you do on production and we're like negotiating with spots for like you know where's you know can we hold a party here how much would that be? oh you want what no you know can we hold a party here uh, so we're, we're in that mode right now but we're also in the mode where it's like okay so this venue wants you know <laughs> i'll share this one there's there's a spot that wanted that wants like if we to hold a to hold a a, a space um that could hold a, about like 200 people they're asking like fifteen thousand dollars uh, that's half the rent that we're spending on the entire lovely Pasadena Playhouse for three days. So, um, yeah, it's like, ugh, no, I and mean, we got a lot of people. So, you know, um, event production, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's tricksy. Um, and you got to make a choice on, on, you know, what do you value? Um, and, uh, as much as I like entertaining everybody, I'm not going to blow $15,000 on a, a venue for one night f that won't even hold like half the people who are going to be hanging out with us. So there, there are other ways. And so we continue to explore those other ways. Um, so yeah, that's, what's up on that. Um, anything else in that world that y'all should know about? Uh, as I mentioned before, the, the picker goes out this week. Uh, the picker will be, uh, open quote unquote, uh, for, uh, like two weeks before we do the sort. Um, there may still be people trickling in, uh, after the picker close and then it's going to be, you know, you'll get a choice of available tickets is how that's going to work. Um, we did do some uh, pre-sales for a couple of the shows that are running concurrently in Los Angeles uh, that are part of the festival. Um, and just as folks look around, because there's other shows coming out, right? So, like, there's other shows running. So, you know, Safe House is going to be up and running and Ceaseless Fun's uh, show, um, 
everyone ag- agrees th- it's about to explode uh, is going to be running. Uh, and those those weren't participating pre-sales uh, and they are going to be running on some of the festival nights. Um, what I would advise folks is uh, is if you if you can, um, you know, you be be mindful of the following Thursday night. There's going to be festival slots and those are going to include for uh, where the others are and for cages uh, and for stash house um, and Friday night there's going to be the stuff that's on campus so that means Gatto casting the key uh, also there'll be a few for where the others are uh, and a few for cages um, so and I think I think a, a couple for stash house if memory serves I'm not looking at the spreadsheet right now so just be mindful that you don't box yourself in um, and then there's going to be some Saturday day, right? So, and that's the thing, right? If like, if, if you go out and you say like, I'm going to buy tickets on Thursday night and Friday night, I'm going to see everything. And then like, I'll just watch on Saturday. Well, Saturday means you'll be missing some keynotes. So, uh, and that's just the way the math is going to work out because we are trying to get everybody through. But remember these shows have small throughputs. So it means we're, we got to open up slots. Um, and it is mathematically possible to put yourself in a situation where you, you might just like, you know, box yourself out completely. Um, so I leave it to you, a uh, good listener uh, who's coming to think. Now, for those of you who aren't coming to think, apologies for boring. You probably turned it off already. Um, and and I won't I won't squirrel away anything um, interesting <laughs> that isn't involved in that on the other side of this. Um, so now, now you can just be fully disappointed because we're going to hit the credits. Um, okay. That's that. Again, I got a cold, uh, and it's been a rough week and, um, honestly the next few weeks look rough. So, um, I'm just saying bear with me. Um, mostly just give me some space. Um, (laughs) if it's not mission critical, (laughs) please not now um and if it is mission critical no it, it might it might take a, a minute for me to get to so there you go that's what's up with that let's go ahead and do the credits like i just promised the mm, and i didn't do i didn't do the credits i didn't do the sustaining backers at the beginning of the show which is always a problem uh the sustaining backers of no Persinium are mark baltazar jan budman paul f lonnie hansen ari hurston sam kinkin sydney Gillery, jeremy charles hahn and Brittany, thank you all. Apologies for not mentioning you at the start of the show. Again, as you can tell, if you listened this far, I'm a little scrambled these days. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Uh, and, um, oh, and then then the credits recycle. Uh, <laughs> Patreon.com slash No Persinium is how you support us. No Persinium.com is how you find us on the internet. We're at No Persinium on Twitter and on Facebook, we're at no underscore percentium on Instagram, uh, which is where the takeovers happen. Uh, so if you want to get a glimpse into the wide world of immersive, that is a it's it's like it's its own thing. It's like the no percentium Instagram is is got its like it's it's like an entirely not different universe, but like it is it is a major part of our programming. And um, I don't think enough people uh, look at it. Um, there should be bazillions of people looking at it. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's it. Um, do not find me on Twitter. Uh, you don't want to right now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm your host, Noah Nelson. I'm out here. I'm making it. I'm surviving. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get through this. And uh, until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>